through second grade to go off to children's church if they so desire, and they can find children's church through the doors over here by the instruments. With the rest of you, um, open your Bibles to the new book that we're studying this fall, the New Testament book of Hebrews. Open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Hebrews, which is on page 1184 in your pew Bible. We just finished a sermon series in Proverbs that lasted for about a year, and uh, now we're into Hebrews. Very excited for this book. I'm fairly intimidated by this book. My goal is to try to do this in about nine months, to kind of keep moving. If not, you know, this book is so thick, so meaty, so deep that if you don't keep moving, you could do it in nine years. Uh, it's just that rich. So I, I decided to sort of take the little bit uh, quicker approach. Uh, for the, just a little housekeeping item, for those of you who are in small group home Bible studies and you want to do a Hebrews Bible study, uh, this year we're not going to be producing from the church the Bible study for you. We just don't have the personnel to do it. It's very labor intensive. It takes just the right person to do that well. Uh, and so instead what we're doing is, if you, if you have a small group that wants to study Hebrews, uh, we are recommending uh, this to you. It's the Navigator's Life Change Series Hebrews Study. They're available if you want to buy them here at the church. You can buy them online or whatever, but they're available downstairs at the book table, I think for like eight bucks. So it's pretty cheap. And then uh, the, the challenge with these is that there's 19 uh, studies in this, and so that's about five months. And this is going to take about nine months. So there's not a synchronization between what I'm preaching on a particular Sunday and what you're studying in your small group. But if you really uh, crave that desire of accuracy and synchronization, what you can do is, uh, if you look in the bulletin, take out your bulletin on the inside front at the bottom, we're going to put the sermon schedule every week. So if you can put these two things together, you see that? You can see, okay, next week we're just studying the first four verses so our Bible study group will only use this guide for the first four verses. And you can, you know, it's simple enough. You can figure out how to do that uh, for those of you who are in a Bible study. Or if you're interested in starting a Bible study, we really need some more Bible study groups in the church. So if that's something that's been on your heart, you know, come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about that. But now Hebrews. What do you know about Hebrews? It's one of those books in the New Testament that, there's probably some things in it that we are familiar with that are kind of highlights, like uh, chapter 11, the hall of faith. Faith is the uh, you know, evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. There's certain verses in Hebrews you probably heard you know, during communion when someone says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. You know, verses like that that we've heard from Hebrews. So in, in some ways it has some real treasures and some nuggets. But I think for a lot of people, Hebrews is kind of a mysterious book because it's, it's just a little different. Have you ever tried to read it recently? It's thick and it's kind of gooey and it can be slow going in the book of Hebrews. Uh, there's a lot of Old Testament quotations and allusions that seem foreign to us. The logic of the arguments don't seem readily apparent sometimes. You know, if you met someone who just became a Christian and they said, well, I want to start reading the Bible now that I'm a Christian, what should I read? You usually don't say, Hebrews. Go to Hebrews. No, no, no. You usually say, I'll read one of the Gospels or read the book of Ephesians. That's a good starting place. Things that are a lot more clear. But Hebrews is, is thicker and so... Uh, even though it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book, I think for some of us it's an intimidating kind of book. 
Uh, we had an elder prayer meeting on Tuesday night. Our elders gathered together. We were praying for, well, we were praying for you. We were praying for the church. And we were praying for this sermon series coming up that God would use it in our congregation's life. And, and one of the elders said, you know, I've been reading Hebrews recently in preparation for this. He said, it's like reading a foreign language. You know, it's hard to get through in some places. And, and, you know, what's interesting is that's not just an experience for lay people. But as I was reading the scholarly literature around Hebrews, it seems like scholars are equally stumped by it as well. In, in fact, there's this phrase that keeps coming up in the commentaries. They keep talking about the riddle of Hebrews. That it's a bit of a mystery. It, it poses all kinds of questions that scholars just can't come to conclusive answers about. Let me give you two quick examples. Uh, the authorship of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote this book. Which is kind of interesting. There's a book in the Bible. We don't know who wrote it. It doesn't say anywhere. Nowhere does it say, I so-and-so wrote this book. Uh, one thing we can say with, I think, fairly uh, good certainty is that the Apostle Paul did not write Hebrews. I think this is the one thing we know for sure. Uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one, it never says, I, Paul, anywhere. And Paul always seems to identify himself in his writings. He always will talk biographically about himself or, or often will do that in his writing. Uh, scholars have analyzed the vocabulary of Hebrews and then they've analyzed the vocabulary of Paul's writings and what you find is they're just very different types of vocabulary. Or, or in other words, if you read Hebrews in Greek and you read Paul in Greek, it's like you're listening to different writers. They just sound different. Um, you know, Paul's pretty easy to translate in Greek. Hebrews, really challenging to translate in Greek, or at least for me anyway, which isn't necessarily saying much. Um, and what do you do with Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3? Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. For instance, he says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. So in other words, the writer is saying, there's the Lord who told us about our salvation, there's those who heard Him, and then those guys told us. Yeah, Paul would never talk like that. Paul's always like, hey, 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 I heard from the Lord myself. We just read that in Acts. I was on the road to Damascus. The Lord himself spoke to me about this salvation. So this is, the book doesn't seem to really feel like Paul. So if Paul didn't write it, who wrote it? And there's a lot of different ideas. Uh, let me throw out some of the ones that scholars have suggested down through the centuries. Some say it might have been Barnabas. Some say Luke wrote this. Some hypothesize Clement of Rome, who was a, an early church father. Some say it was Stephen the martyr. Some suggest Jude, some Priscilla and Aquila. Some have suggested Apollos. Luther thought it might be Apollos. But the bottom line is we just don't know and there's no conclusive evidence. You know, another uh, scholarly problem with Hebrews is we don't really know what this thing is. Like, what kind of literature are we dealing with here, friends? Uh, it's not a gospel. Um, what is it? What's, what genre of literature? Is it a letter? Well, it doesn't begin like a letter. You know, letters in the New Testament begin a certain way. It'll start with the guy who's writing it. You know, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It'll then include the sender, the person to whom it's being sent, which is, you know, to the Ephesians or something like that. And then it'll have a little peace wish. And so there's sort of a form that's used in New Testament letters and ancient letters. But you look at Hebrews. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, there's none of this stuff. He just kicks right in. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and boom, he's on his way. You're like, well, okay, so it's not a letter. So what is it? Well, many scholars say it's a sermon. 
Some have suggested this is an ancient sermon. But the problem is, uh, it ends like a letter. (laughs) So it doesn't begin like a letter, but it ends like a letter, but it's not really like a letter. Look at chapter 13. Turn back to the last chapter of Hebrews. Chapter 13 is a series, not of a cohesive argument, but a series of kind of random instructions, which is how letters tend to end. And then if you look at verse 22, chapter 13, he says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. Okay, beside, putting aside the issue of what this guy thinks a short letter is, <laughs> you know, uh, he says, I've written you a letter. And then he ends like a letter. He says, Grace be with you all, and he sends final greetings. So, you know, people argue over what exactly is this thing. And I I suppose to be on the safe side, what we can do is just look at verse 22, where it says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with this word of exhortation. What is Hebrews? It's a word of exhortation. What's a word of exhortation? It's what Hebrews is. (laughs) And what is Hebrews? Around and around. So we don't really know what this thing is. It's a unique, unique book within the New Testament. And there's other issues that I won't get into, but... People don't know when it was written. We don't know who the original audience is. Scholars can't nail down a general uh, you know, structure to this book. It's very hard to understand its structure and its flow. and It doesn't have a very simple layout. So whether you're just an average you know, lay person in church trying to read the book for yourself, or whether you are a PhD in the ivory towers of academia, people pick up this book and they struggle with it. Because it's, it's not a simple, easy read. So why are we studying it for the next nine months? Why are we dealing with this uh, book? Why would we look at it in detail? What's the point? Just to confuse ourselves and trouble ourselves? Well, despite the challenges, despite the unanswered questions, uh, the fact remains that Hebrews has a message that speaks with such power that Christians have continued to turn to it despite how difficult it is to understand at some points. Despite the unanswered questions, the overall message of this book, the vision of this book, what it has to say to us as Christians is so vital that even today in the 21st century, I think it speaks with such penetrating power though at times it seems arcane and and shrouded in the past. The message of this book is so important. And what is the message of Hebrews? Well, I guess one way to answer the question is we'll come for the next nine months and we'll find out together. Uh, But if I could, at the risk of oversimplification, if I could summarize this book. Hebrews was written to revitalize and refresh Christians who were, had been Christians for a while and they were in danger of kind of scaling back, wimping out, and dropping out on their faith. That the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, knew a group of people who were Christians, whoever they were, and we don't know who they were, but we know that the author realized these Christians who'd been at the faith journey for some time were for some reason starting to go soft in their commitment to Christ. They were at the risk of selling out and kind of just blending in with the culture, throttling back on the Christian faith. And so this writer is writing to tell these 
tired, flagging, wimping out Christians to get back in the race and to keep pressing on with their Christian faith. I'll tell you, that's a message that I think every Christian needs to hear because it's something we struggle with as Christians. Let me just talk about that in a little more detail. The first thing you see in Hebrews is whoever these people were, it appears that the majority of them had been Christians for some time. Okay, so this book is not written to brand new baby Christians, although I think we're going to see this book was very helpful to brand new baby Christians and even those who may be not Christians yet but are just kind of exploring Christianity. This will be a very helpful book. But... The fact remains, it was written to people who had been Christians for a while. Uh, So they weren't newborn babies. They were somewhere in the midlife of the Christian faith. And apparently, they were having a midlife crisis in their faith. They were in a crisis moment. They were wondering, is this worth it? Do I need to keep going? Uh, Look at this. Look at chapter 5, for instance. Let me give you some examples. Chapter 5, verse 11. We see these mid-journey Christians... It says in verse 11, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers. <laughs> you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Look, guys, how many sermons have you heard? How many Bible studies have you gone to? You've been doing this for a while, learning a lot, and yet you're still kind of acting like spiritual babies. You should be a little more grown up. You should be teachers, in fact, by now. You should be leading your own Bible study. You should be telling others about the Word instead of just feeding and feeding and feeding. So what's the point? The point is they've been Christians for a while, and it's surprising to the author that they're not more mature than they are. Or another example of their uh, fact that they've been Christians for a while. Look at verse 10 of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 10. He throws out this little line. He says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him if you have helped His people and continue to help them. So these people have been Christians for a while. They've been helping other Christians. They have ministry experience. Or just one more example of their long-time Christian status. Look at chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. The author says, remember those early days? Remember way back then, those early days? After you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Remember that way back then? Oh yeah, I remember that. Remember how tough that was? Oh, yeah, forgot about that. So these are people who have suffered in the past. They have been taught for many years. They have been involved in ministry for many years. These are not brand new baby Christians. They're somewhere in the midlife. Okay? Uh, They're not in the honeymoon phase of the relationship with Jesus where everything is wonderful and new and sparkly. They're somewhere in that middle phase of marriage where it's very easy for things to become routine and uh, stressful and monotonous. And it's easy in the middle years of marriage, if you're not careful as a couple, to lose the intimacy 
and the warmth and the closeness. You have to stay at that. And it's easy just to let that slide because you're just so busy getting kids here and working over there and making money and making plans. And so to use that analogy, these Christians are somewhere in the middle and it appears that their intimacy with Jesus has begun to separate and drift and they're losing sight of that closeness closeness with Christ. Or to use one more metaphor, they're not at the beginning of the race where all the excitement is on the starting line, and they're not at the end of the race where they can see the finish line and they're giving it all they got at the very end. They're somewhere in the middle of the Christian marathon. And I say, marathon. (laughs) It's not a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon race. And they're somewhere in the middle where their lungs are burning and they've been pounding relentlessly on the pavement and they feel the you know, the shock going up through their legs and into their lower back and their shoulders are getting tired. And they just are thinking, why did I get into running? <laughs> this is a sickness. I mean, why am I running? Uh, why am I in this marathon? Why am I a Christian? Here I am, I'm running this race and everyone on the sidelines living happy and they're eating barbecue and you know, drinking Coke, and I'm out here trying not to throw up because I'm running so hard. And all these other people who aren't Christians seem to be fine. And here I am, pushing myself and pushing myself. What am I doing? And they're thinking, maybe I shouldn't do this. They're slowing down their pace. They're, they're thinking about dropping out of the race or maybe walking. Maybe I'll just walk for a while. That's it. And they're slowing down. And so this is a book written to Christians, not at the beginning, but somewhere mid-journey, And they're tempted to slow down, give up, and drop out. Can anyone relate to this? (laughs) Is it just me who can can relate to this? What's slowing them down? What are they worried about? Why are they tempted to drop out? Well, again, we don't know for certain. It's one of those mysteries. What's going on there? I don't exactly know. But we do have a couple hints. It appears one thing that's going on is that they're facing hardship as Christians. There's something happening that's making their lives difficult. There's pressure against them, and it's making them feel like, yeah, I don't know if I can keep doing this. You know, for instance, look at chapter 12. Here's a little hint that they're having some hardships. Chapter 12, verse 4. The author says, In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then we get a quote from Proverbs. We studied this passage. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes every one he accepts as a son. Here we go, verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. So we can kind of read backwards from that and surmise maybe they were going through some hardships. And... The problem is they're going through these hardships and they're asking the question, is God abandoning me? Has God forgotten me? Instead of saying God is loving me as his son and he's pushing me and and disciplining me, they're they're thinking, no, no, God has abandoned me. And have you ever felt that way when you go through difficulty as a Christian? Especially if you go through an extended period of chronic difficulty. You know, you start thinking these thoughts. You're like, all right, God, uh, how does this work exactly? Uh, so you, you make it difficult on those who are your best followers? You know, God, I've been at this thing for 20 years. Do you know how many committees I've served on, God? Do you know how many committee meetings I've been to? Do you know the, the garbage church politics I've had to wade through? 
Lord, do you know how many diapers I've changed in the nursery? Uh, surely you know that, God. If you count the number of hairs on my head, you know how many nursery diapers I've changed. Do you know how much money I've given to your work? Uh, God, I'm trying to follow you. <laughs> and so after all these years and after all this faithfulness, here in the middle of the race, explain to me again, God, why my business is tanking. That doesn't make any sense. You know, why is my child completely out of control? Or why can't we ever have a child? Or why can't I even find a spouse? I, I'm trying to be the good Christian person you want me to be. You know, why did I get these medical results? Why is my spouse afflicted with this illness? Or whatever it is. And we start to wonder, why is God doing this? And the temptation in difficulty is to think, maybe I'm being abandoned by God. Maybe God has given up on me. And so these people are facing difficulty, and rather than interpreting it as God's work in their life, they're tiring out, and they're thinking, well, maybe it's not even worth it. I mean, look, these other people over there on the side of the lines who aren't Christians, they seem to be just fine and happy. And uh, you know, maybe, maybe I should go over with them. <laughs> and at least I can stop running, you know, get a Coke, hang out, chill out, be normal, instead of being out here like a spectacle running down this road. Maybe some of the, uh, the struggle they were facing was persecution from other people. Maybe there were people jeering them on the side of the race. Uh, look up at uh, verse 3, for instance. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 is one of my favorite sections. Oh, let me just read the whole thing. It's so good. Okay, I can't resist. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Here's the metaphor. Let us run, the, uh, run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here we go, verse 3. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It could be that they were specifically experiencing opposition from people who rejected their faith and were opposed to their faith. That's possible too. That's tough, you know. When you first become a Christian and you have that first Thanksgiving with your family who aren't Christians, you can kind of get psyched up for it. Like, all right, here we go. I'm going to be a light. I'm going to tell people about Christ. This is my chance. And you pray and you tell people at church, hey, pray. I'm getting together with my extended family. And I'm the only Christian there. All right, we'll pray for you. And you could do that the second Thanksgiving. You know, let's get pumped up. Let's pray. But you know, by like the 16th Thanksgiving, you're not thinking anymore like, I'm going to be a light. I'm going to be a witness. You know, you're, you're just like, Lord, get me through this fast. How can, I, how can I get out of Thanksgiving without anyone mocking me or belittling my faith or getting in an argument about politics? I just want out of this thing as quickly as possible. And it's easy at that point to be like, what's the point? You know, it's really hard being the only Christian where you work. It's really hard being the only Christian on your soccer team or your lacrosse team. Being the only Christian in your school that you know who isn't into the party scene and isn't sleeping around and all that stuff. And you're trying to hold that line and everyone else is watching you on the side of the race like, what are you doing? Just stop it. <laughs> you know? It's very difficult. And it's easy to just give up when you're facing that kind of uh, test of endurance from difficulties, from persecutions. And then one other thing that I think is hard is just temptation. That appears to be something that was happening to these Christians is they were being tempted to sin. Uh, let me give you one example. Chapter 3, 
verse 7. There's a lot of examples I could look at here, but chapter 3, verse 7. I'm sorry, uh, go to verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. He says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So he's telling mid-journey, many-year Christians to be careful that they don't have sinful, unbelieving hearts. I don't know. At some point, don't you just get over the whole sinful, unbelieving heart thing? I mean, after you've chaired a committee twice, don't you think you should just graduate past a lot of temptations? I mean, shouldn't we just kind of mature past really being tempted and tested by sin? That's not how it works. Uh, the battle against sin and against temptation is a lifelong battle. You know, I'll never forget uh, a story I heard from Gordon McDonald, who was the pastor at Grace Chapel for many years. And um, Gordon told this story about a time he was driving into Boston with this, he was going to some pastor's thing, and he was riding in with this old retired pastor, this elderly gentleman, and they're driving down the Mass Pike east into Boston from from out west and and as they drive on the mass pike i guess this old guy suddenly pulls the car over on the side of the road on the mass pike and gordon mcdonald's like oh my gosh is he having a heart attack is something bad happening you know what's what's happening and the guy pulls the car over he's like you're pulling over on them you don't pull over on the mass pike when the cars are zipping by and the guy and the guy says we need to just have a word of prayer it's like okay and and the old man prays lord as we go into boston i know there are many beautiful women And I just pray that you would help us not to focus on distractions, but to keep our hearts pure and our thoughts pure for you. Amen. And then he took off. (laughs) And Gordon McDonald's like, he goes, that's when I realized this struggle against sin will never end. It is a constant battle. Now take out lust. Put in the sin of your choice. The struggle against anger. Why am I still been a Christian for 15 years and I still fly off the handle? I've been a Christian for 20 years and I'm still so controlling and manipulative. Why do, why do I still say things that hurt people and offend people? I've been a Christian for 25 years and why do I still seem to want to go back and worship at the idols of alcohol or food or shopping. You know, why uh, am I obsessed with this? And I thought I was done with that. Boy, I haven't had a struggle with that sin for 10 years and all of a sudden I've regressed and I'm back where I was. And when you struggle with sin, you're like, I should be past this. Why am I still struggling with this? And it can be easy to give up and to say, you know what, well maybe, maybe that's for like really super Christians. Maybe we should just go back to the Catholic thing with saints. That would be easier. You know, where the saints are like the really good ones who've got it right, and we're just sort of the regular schmoes, and, you know, we'll never really be there, so we'll just pray and ask God to give us some of their merits, because we're never going to get there. Maybe we just adopt that kind of a system. Like, why keep pushing for holiness? Why keep trying to fight against sin? It's too hard. I'm just the way I am. I'm always going to be this way. And we've given up in the fight against sin in our lives. It's easy to fall back into that and to become tired. So this is why I think that even though Hebrews is difficult, even though it is full of riddles and mysteries, even though it is not easily digestible at times, this is why Christians keep coming back to this book. Because it seems to be speaking to a universal Christian experience. 
which is the experience of the Christian life as an endurance race. Not a hundred yard dash. An endurance race. And as we are tempted to give up, as we are slowing down our pace, as we're thinking about the benefits of sitting on the sideline, perhaps we've stopped, perhaps we're standing there in our race. Maybe some of us are thinking about walking off the racetrack. Suddenly, the writer of Hebrews emerges from the sidelines. He's like, hey, you! Get going! Come on! Pick up your pace. Get back on schedule. The finish line is around the corner. Everyone's waiting for you. Go, 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 go! You know, when we start running again, you need that coach sometimes to, you know, to grab you by the, the, the lapels and just say, come on! Stop giving up. Push harder. And so Hebrews is a, it's a revival book. It's a call to renewed enthusiasm and zeal in our following of Jesus Christ in a long, tiring race where the odds seem to be completely stacked against us to finish. And so how is he going to get us to go? Because, you know, when you're tired, you don't want to run anymore. Like, what's the motivation? What trick is he going to use to get us to keep running? And the answer is this, that the writer of Hebrews is going to seek to revitalize our faith and our perseverance in Christ in the way that faith is always revitalized. The only way it is really revitalized. The author of Hebrews is going to seek to revive our faith by giving us a fresh vision of the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the burning center of Hebrews. What is Hebrews? It is a passionate, burning exposition of Jesus who He is and what He's done. So as it says in chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus and the finish line, we suddenly go, yeah, that's why I got in the race in the first place. Why did I become a Christian way back then? It's because my heart was captivated by the Lord Jesus. And when I get a vision of my Lord again, when I hear a fresh song like we sang today about Jesus finding me, and I remember why I became a Christian, I am revitalized to keep running the race. Particularly in Hebrews, the author wants to hold up two major themes about Jesus. Number one is Jesus as the eternal Son. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Just really quickly here. And I'll wrap this up Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Jesus as the eternal Son. In the past, it says, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. I, can't, I don't want to spend too much time commenting on that because we're going to preach on this next Sunday. But there's not a much clearer passage in the Bible speaking to the divinity of Jesus Christ than this passage. I mean, it says everything short of just saying Jesus is God. But it's all right there, people. It's all right there. 
So we want to hold up the eternal Son so that as we are struggling against the trials of this life and all of the stuff that has kept us awake this week at night and has given us an ulcer and freaking us out, we can look at all that and say, you know what, this is all so temporary. I want to see Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as I am refocused on the authority of the glorious Son, I'll be re-inspired to follow Him. And then, uh, on the other side, the other theme that we're going to see is Jesus not only as the eternal Son, but Jesus as the great High Priest. That's the other major theme of Christology in the book of Hebrews. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 17. 2, verse 17. For this reason, He, Jesus, had to be made like His brothers, that's us, in every way, in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest, there's the high priest, in service to God, and that He might make atonement for the sins of His people, because He Himself suffered when He was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. We can win against sin and temptation. We don't have to sin. Christ can help us. He is our high priest. Not only did Jesus die for my sins to forgive me and save me, but He continues to be there for me to strengthen me. But what it's going to take is a renewed focus and daily, perhaps hourly, sometimes minute by minute, dependence upon Him for strength to fight back against the temptations that have plagued me my whole life. But Christ is the answer. And the last thing I'll say about Jesus here in, as I summarize this is that not only is He the great high priest and not only is He the eternal Son of God, but this vision of Jesus that we're going to be given comes out of the Old Testament Scriptures. In other words, this is not just this guy's take on Jesus. He is, he is going to give us a Scripture-based, Scripture-soaked, Scripture-alive vision of who Jesus is. And so it's going to be a very... That's why the book's so thick, because it's so full of Scripture. So we're going to learn a lot in this New Testament book about the Old Testament. So bring your thinking caps when you come the next nine months. Uh, We're going to have to dig deep into some of this, but it's going to be good. Or to put it yet another way, the book of Hebrews is seeking to revive us in the same way that revival has always come to God's people. You look at any of the great revivals in the Bible after the Bible times, they all, at the center of those revivals, you'll always find the same thing. Whether it was the revival under Josiah in the Old Testament, or the revival under Ezra, or uh, the great day of Pentecost, or whether you look at the Reformation, or, or you look at the English Reformation under the Puritans, or you go to the Great Awakening in the 18th century that happened right here on Boston Common when 40,000 Bostonians pressed into the commons desperate to hear the gospel. What was at the center of every great revival in church history and in the biblical record? It was this. It was that the Bible, the Word of God was opened and Jesus Christ and what He did for us was lifted up. Every revival, that's the epicenter of the earthquake. The Bible is opened. Christ in His cross is lifted up. And so my prayer for us this fall is not just that we would unravel some mysteries or grow in some theological knowledge. The thing I'm praying for you as a church, as your pastor, in addition to praying for 
those of you who are out of work and those of us who are sick and those of us who have all kinds of struggles, I'm praying for that too. But the thing I'm praying for everyone here and starting with myself is that this year, God in His mercy would send an outpouring of fresh fire upon our congregation. That we would be awakened. That that sin would be swept away. That our our complacency and our half-hearted Christianity would just be swept away and that it would be replaced with a fresh enthusiasm that maybe some of us haven't felt for years. And that God's Holy Spirit would just awaken our church because people, the race is long and there is so much work to be done in the South Shore of Boston. And the best thing Satan could do to keep our church blunted and ineffective would just be to make us lazy, lackadaisical, not praying, not seeking Christians. And so may God blow a fresh wind of revival and renewal into our congregation this fall. Let's pray. So Lord, this is my request, that you would do just that. That Lord, you would send fresh fire. That Lord, you would send a fresh baptism of the Spirit. The Lord, you would give us a second wind in this race. Lord, that you would revitalize our church. That you would shake out anything, God, that's hindering us in our faith. God, I pray for those who are running the race strong, that you'd keep them going hard. Lord, I pray for those who are tiring, that you would strengthen them. For those who've wandered off, that you would bring them back. For those who are trying to run, but they're just weighed down with too much clothing and too much accessories, God, that you would just strip them of all those things in their life that are slowing them down so they can run with perseverance. And so, God, do a fresh renewal through Hebrews in our church. Lord, we we don't want anything less. We pray this in Christ's name. Would you please take the celebration hymnal, turn to number...